Hello, and welcome to LINK, the industry's link to learn, innovate, news, knowledge, and global supply chain intelligence, hosted by Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive. This new and improved podcast channel will cover everything from transportation and warehousing trends and technologies to food safety and sustainability impacting today's supply chains. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to LINK Live. I'm Marina Mayer, Editor-in-Chief of Food Logistics and Supply and Demand Chain Executive, and I'm here with a part of our team. The other part of our team is on vacation and hopefully not watching us because she's <laughs> enjoying her vacation. But McKenna, you can introduce yourself. My name is McKenna Morales and I am the assistant editor. Plum. And today, <laughs> and, and Plum the Pillow is with us today. We're very yes. excited. Oh, right there. And exactly. knowing, knowing the actual Plum, she will probably make an appearance because she won't be quiet. Exactly. That's okay. She's very excited to have our guest today, which I'm very excited as well. Um, Vice President of Supply Chain for Consumer Brands Association here to talk with us about how the new administration's impact on consumer packaged goods supply chains. Tom, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to, to being a part of the conversation, uh, joining Plum, and I'll try to balance <laughs> the, being, the being quiet with the voicing and articulating a thoughtful opinion. So. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. As, won't be as charming as Plum, but. Uh, uh, she's kind of hard to beat, honestly. She's she really is. <laughs> she really is. She's, she's, she's the winner. We still need to get her, her own Twitter account, so we'll work yes. on that. Um, before we dive in with you, Tom, I just wanted to go over a couple of housekeeping items for the people watching. Um, nominations for Food Logistics Top Green Providers Award close March 21st. I know that seems like a way of ways away, but trust me, it is right around the corner. So please make sure you get those nominations in. I'm going to put the link to the registration form in the chat. Nominations for Supply and Demand Chain Executives Top Supply Chain Projects. That is open through April 11th. Again, I'll put the registration link to that as well. So let's talk CPG trends. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic still, and consumer packaged goods kind of um, took off. Um, and how, Tom, explain to us kind of something about, you know, the background about the consumer packaged goods with COVID and how something like a pandemic or any, you know, supply chain disruption of any kind. Um, impacts CPG growth, what, you know, kind of are the relations to those and, and how can these supply chains prepare for, you know, what could still come? Right. I mean, I think that it's a, it's a question that you know, when you talk about, um, right, or like building more resilient supply chains, like this is the type of conversation that everyone across the industry is having right now. Um, and the way that I used to talk about it, like, well, how do you prepare for um, you know, the next black swan event, but like, frankly, like the black swan event keeps happening, right? It's no longer a black swan. If it's just like, it's another global pandemic or another earthquake <laughs> or another tornado. Like it's no longer really a, a really particularly unique event. If it's just ongoing risk or like, you know, a different destabilizing event that happens, um, specific to CPG. And I think that where you saw some of the early breakdowns in the supply chain happen was because of the sort of the binary nature in a, lot, in a lot of ways of consumer packaged goods, right? That you have consumer demand, but then you also have food service demand. You also have the airport. So you have like all of this, the sort of the, you know, the commercial sector and its demand. Uh, and that those supply chains have tended to, they coexist, um, but they don't 
commingle. Uh, like like the, you at home don't have the industrial sized roll of toilet paper that you find at the airport, uh, nor would you want that. And it's a it's a completely different manufacturing process. It's a different distribution process. There's a whole uh, sort of set of you know almost a distinct supply chain for that. And so when demand collapsed for one of those sectors, right? You have nobody flying anymore, nobody going to a bar, nobody going uh, you know out to eat with their family. And then all of a sudden, everybody is eating at home. Everybody is then changing even the patterns of life that they have at home. So what used to be the case, you know, if we stayed home over the weekend, that might even look different now than when we have our gym at home, we have our office at home, we have our, our baby at home, like all of these things that are happening in a different, not just uh, being at home more, but then living at home differently changed. So there's this huge change in, in the demand side. And then the CPGs being on sort of the, you know, through the retail, through like the upstream distribution system, like ultimately being on the receiving end of that, trying to adapt, trying to predict consumer behavior, trying to work with their retail partners as closely as possible. But how do you sort of get on the same page when it comes to the, that demand equation? And one of the things that I think we saw happen during the, the early days of the pandemic too, is that, uh, there's a bit of like back to the basics approach that was taken, not just buckling down and just, you know, increasing manufacturing capacity or like working over, you know, over time, so to speak, and increasing the days of production or, you know, trying to keep up with it. Um, but also, you know, these aut heavily automated syst systems in some case, or the predictive systems that were in place clearly weren't, uh, ready to account for that huge swing, right? That you wouldn't typically experience. And so there's a bit of needing to pull back a little bit to say, you know, we're gonna do this almost by hand. Uh, like, you know, not that it's as simple as the, you know, a math equation, but like, let's set aside the automated system for a second. Let's recalibrate, think through this problem together with our retail partner, with the others in play, figure out the best path forward and then integrate back to those systems so that they're better informed and that they're making better decisions. Um, and so I think you saw that. And I think that the results spoke for themselves, that the, the industry proved itself as resilient, that you go to the stores now. And there, there's certainly still product categories that there's, you know, if you find a box of, you know, sanit sanitizing wipes or something like that, good for you because you should you should scoop them up because they're 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 still a rare commodity um and you might not be able to find always every single product that you want at any any moment but generally speaking i think you go to the store you order something from online and it's available so the industry has proven itself resilient and able to weather through that um and it was just a matter i think of, of revisiting some of those systems getting on the same page with retailers and i think the path forward looks very similar too so um if you want to build resiliency uh there needs to be that better understanding of your own internal operations sort of a, a, a balancing of uh the efficiency side of and running a really lean operation versus what does it mean to be resilient uh, and actually, I just had a, a call with one of our member companies, and they were very quick to point out, and I think rightfully so, that there's a tendency when we talk about resiliency to then associate it to redundancy. And redundancy is not the same thing. Um, it can help and make you more resilient, but uh, ultimately, you should be looking and thinking about like, well, what is what is the resiliency look like, or the ability to bounce back if something, you know, production drops or transportation capacity falls out of the market or whatever that is, how do you get, quickly get back to the normal state? 
uh, and that the speed of, of getting back up to normal is, is what's resiliency. Um, so there's that piece. There's the retail collaboration piece. A lot of the member companies and the CPG's industry found that they were able to get more done with their retail partners in the span of those, you know, couple of weeks during initial COVID than they had in multiple years because it forced everyone to go back to the basics or like talking about what they actually had or getting rid of some of the automated systems, at least for the, the short term. Um, and that, that emphasis on retail collaboration, I think will be a really key piece going forward. Um, and the, the data sharing and elements that are involved there that I think will sort of power the future of CPG. And it's a sort of a separate discussion that we could have at some point. Um, and I think that connects then to like, how do you actually enable the, that future supply network or that environment to exist through by virtue of technology and the, un, sort of the underpinnings that facilitate it. But I do think that the lessons learned from the pandemic sort of uh, point, they give a path forward, right? That like, there's a, a maybe not quite a, a pandemic playbook that's evolved out of it, but there are some really good best practices and learnings that the CPG industry is going to take from it. Uh, and I think implement to, to everyone's uh, benefit. You know, you bring up some interesting points because we talk about it on our end. Sorry, McKenna, I didn't mean to cut you off. I no, think that's you okay. Trying to talk. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we talk about it a lot with, you know, a lot of the technologies that came about and like almost overnight, you know, everything was robotic automation because it was designed to kind of it be infiltrated into the warehouse or into a facility and remove, be able to remove the human worker, you know, to kind of, you know, for um, safety purposes. And, you know, we talk about food safety, we talk about pharmaceutical safety, we talk about all this stuff. And at the end of the day, it's not just making sure that this, the, the product is edible or when you put it on your skin, that it's not going to get you sick or cause you a rash. Now we're talking about the people that are actually producing these products being safe. So it's kind of a convoluted thing. And then, you know, we talked earlier, you mentioned earlier about the stockpiling thing and I don't know if, any, if you know anybody from Pepsi, but my husband has been out of diet Mountain Dew <laughs> Code Red since like June of last year, and he's like foaming at the bit. So, oh my gosh, um, Wisconsin <laughs> has a lot of Pepsi plants. So, I, well, I know because our our boss John Minnick, who's probably not watching today, but he always takes a picture of him drinking it and sending it to me in our team's chat. It's like, oh, well, I got it. Well, still I'll, I'll, have, I'll so. relay that to to <laughs> specifically. <laughs> By the way, can you deliver? No, I'm just, um, yeah, it, like we don't need the toilet paper. Just send us the diet Mountain Dew. We are okay. We don't need anything else. <laughs> it is like really funny to watch and sort of think through the de where demand spiked and why. I mean, there were all like the memes and jokes. Why is everyone stockpiling toilet paper for a respiratory illness? Like nobody even understood like, why. <laughs> um, but like there, there are all these like sort of funny trends that evolved out of it. Like for a brief period of time, sports, you know, drinks and, you know, people weren't going to gyms like that demand dropped. Now, a lot of these brands, they, they can't produce enough because it's like almost like everybody has taken up like overnight. All of a sudden, America became a nation of bakers. Nobody baked in America. <laughs> pandemic. All of a sudden, like flour, yeast, everybody wants to make sourdough like no offense. And like, frankly, like, I don't know what happened to all the leaven, but like, it, it's somewhere. <laughs> Somebody is, I don't know. Somebody's uh, got a head like stashed in their, their like pantry and it's like, they're going to find their sourdough starter years from now to be like, oh, this was Bob. But like, everybody's yeah. sourdough starting too, if you're a millennial. So. Exactly. Uh, 
I just have to ask what was something that you guys stockpiled on? Because even though we all work in the supply chain, our brains also broke when we were ordering stuff and had to stockpile. Like when we came back from Bodens and I had to go to the grocery store because we actually didn't have any food in our place. I, the only thing that was available was Mrs. Grass soup which is fine because I like that, but I don't eat soup that often. So I moved in the summer and I had to move like eight boxes of Mrs. Grass soup because that was all that was available. And I bought so much cold medicine because no one seemed to have touched that. And it probably looked concerning whoever was checking me out, but because all I had was soup and cold medicine, but that's what I had and now I'm set. I mean, and you probably, the, the sad thing, like, is it stockpiling though if you still have it? So like, <laughs> like, we bought a lot of wine. We've gone through a lot of wine. I don't know if you can actually say that we've stockpiled it. Whereas like, I haven't touched the like one bag of cashews that I bought at the start. Like, I, I still have that. I've technically now stockpiled the cashews. Uh, yeah. The end verdict of wine is always better than, so. <laughs> But I think that's a good point because, you know, and, you know, we talked about this off air beforehand, you know, with kids, you know, you have to, there's certain things that you just always need. And, you know, I have a, a nine-year-old and I have a kindergartner, a five-and-a-half-year-old, and my five-and-a-half-year-old, seriously, if they, we go into apocalypse, he's not going to survive because he has to eat like every three hours. And it, it's like a big <laughs> meal, you know? And so, like, you bring up a good point, like stockpiling but eating, I mean, we were rotating the snack shelf, like filling it up every week. And I've never had to go grocery shopping that much, but then they were also home more. Like they weren't in school getting fed there. But I mean, those aisles, man, the consumer packaged goods aisles definitely loved me because I was like add to cart, add to cart, add to cart, like every three days. So stockpiling I don't know that we still have any of that stuff I think it has like a three-day turnaround in my house but it goes to like the demand shift the, the way that consumers are interacting with products and I think that there's you look at analyst reports things like that nobody is gonna predict that the consumer packaged goods industry maintains the exact same like year-over-year growth that was seen in 2020 um, right. nor, nor should they but I think that one of the interesting things to come out of the pandemic is that uh, there is some staying power to, to that growth, right? That, that people were exposed to a different way of, uh, of living, if, if you will. Um, and so certain uh, product carriers, maybe they'll drop a little bit in terms of the demand, but you know what? People actually like to cook at home or maybe you know people are feel enabled to work from home more often. Um, so it's the same sort of thing that you see in like the commercial real estate sector, or like others are like, there's this rebalancing a little bit of, you know, how that system will work in totality. Uh, and I think that there'll, there'll be sort of an interesting discussion that, that comes out of it in terms of, you know, where demand levels stay high, where, where, what drops and how much. Um, the other piece in play is, you, know, you mentioned like add to cart, add to cart. Um, I assume that you weren't going through the grocery store talking to yourself. Add to no. Cart. <laughs> the minute I was able to do curbside or drive up, I mean, right. sold. So, and I don't uh, think I walked into an actual grocery store maybe three times in one year. So, so conversation around e-commerce and what is the role to play. There's, it's, it's also not a, a 
a monolithic discussion there either because there's so many different forms of grocery e-commerce. So you went from, as it was, I want to say, you know, before the pandemic, it was some paltry percentage of the of like the total spend. It might now be up to three percent or something of total spend from a gro grocery buying an aggregate, which sounds like nothing. But like if it doubled during one the span of one year, that was a five to ten year acceleration of grocery e-commerce. And so as companies wrestle with what that growth looks like going forward, um, it's going to be a, a present a host of challenges, a host of opportunities for companies to think through so, some of it's on the retail industry to figure out like, you know, my, my member companies probably don't need to worry as much about the last mile and like the particular, like the, how do you solve the, the, the time and the cost of that? Um, but they do need to care about it insofar as ultimately reaching the consumer or ultimately like that is their, their um, sort of the growth vector like that's where the growth is so if they want that model to work and to be successful so that they can grow they do need to care about it with their retail partners so there's that conversation that emerges from this around i think how do you make the e-commerce model work how do you duplicate some of the uh same patterns of buying you know like at least in my household it, i order the same basic things week to week yes. right like yes. i'm not and I find now when I go to a grocery store, I look at my receipt, and I'm like, wow, how? Like I spent a, a lot more on all of these other things that I didn't even know I needed. Um, yeah. but there's a, a, a benefit to that. I mean, we're talking about like the industry and its growth and like how all that, how do you recreate that experience of shopping, but online? How do you uh, create the sort of like promotional programs or the other aspects in play that are, that are traditionally more in-store and how do you duplicate that online? Um, there's all of these sort of these challenges that are, I think, presented, but there are also opportunities. I think if, if companies seize on them the right way and they partner with their retail, uh, uh, customers and, and they, they work through that. It's just a, it's an early days conversation that's coming out of the pandemic. And as they talk about resiliency, they're also talking about how do you grow into the future? Um, our dear friend, Daniel Stanton is making some good comments at as well as saying, mentioning the bullwhip effect and how manufacturers started to focus on core products at the very beginning of the pandemic as well. But I do have a question, and I guess it goes to what you were saying before, but how else do you project that the new administration will impact CPG supply chains? Yeah, I mean, I and just to briefly pick up on Daniel's kind of, I 100% agree with the sort of the focus on on core products or you know skew rationalization. I'd probably argue that some of that needed to take place anyway. Um, there's if, you know certain uh, you know brands have a hundred different types of soup. Do you, do you need a hundred types of soup or do you need eighty or do you need like what is the and is there a difference between like black bean tortilla and black bean? Like I don't know. Um, there probably is, but like there, there might be some degree of like sorting through that. And I know that that like, that's an oversimplification, but, um, I think it, an intentionally provocative one. And in, insofar as there's a benefit to some degree of rationalization prompted by COVID to simplify supply chains and to refocus on what consumers want as that demand shifts because of the pandemic, because they, you know, there are like to the points I made staying at home more or, or working out at home or, or their, their needs have shifted. So I think that that's an important uh, piece. To, 
Uh, McKenna, to your question about the administration, I I think that you know any administration is one where there's sort of a, a set of challenges and there's a set of opportunities. Um, maybe challenge and opportunity is like something that you'll hear me talk a lot about in light of the pandemic. But um, I think that the the clear opportunities are around um, the fact that this is an administration that had a uh, you know a supply chain plan or sort of a, a described strategy on supply chain. For like I've never seen a, a presidential candidate have a supply chain page on their website and to talk about it and sort of be thoughtful. Um, and I, that I think gives a lot of runway to engage between the, the private sector and the public sector and to have a meaningful discussion about what needs to change. Uh, we saw that uh, in the last week or so with the executive order on supply chains and the inclusion of uh, food and also personal care, like health, health products. Uh, in that, in terms of how the government is going to uh, look at how those supply chains function and sort of assess their resiliency. I think that's a really important step. One, because like, if government is to make smarter decisions around supply chain and to enact policies that assist American supply chains, they actually need to understand how those supply chains work. Uh, there isn't a lot of good understanding within government at times about how modern supply chains function. They're complex, they're interconnected, they don't... Uh, immediately link up to the rather siloed, just inherently siloed approach that government has with like, okay, DOT does this, USDA does this, EPA does this, like, and a, a, supply, a private sector supply chain crosses every single agency or uh, it, it stretches across. So having an, an administration that is thoughtful and that cares about the topic, I think it is a, is a real differentiator. It gives the industry an opportunity to engage and to have a, a more meaningful discussion around, you know, what should industrial policy in the US look like uh, if we are to stay competitive with the rest of the world? Can we integrate uh, policymaking and supply chains a little bit better? And what I mean by that is uh, we just released a report um, that looks at what are all the different ways that government today interacts with supply chain um, and there's a, a host of different ways, transportation policy, trade policy, labor policy, like it all in it. It's just that that policymaking at times, it, it's not that we need more policymaking uh, on supply chain. It's that the batch, of policies, <laughs> the batch of policies that already impact supply chains can be more thoughtfully sort of orchestrated or, or aligned, or that there can be this degree of conversation between the private sector and the public sector so that it's meaningful policymaking, uh, that it's additive, and that it boosts national competitiveness and resiliency. It lays the foundation for the industry to, to succeed rather than just adding time, cost, and complexity to, to doing business. Um, so I think that that's, a, that's the, the opportunity with the administration is this opportunity to engage. It's an opportunity to go deep on infrastructure and, you know, the, the expectations there. It's talk about sustainability and recycling and becoming, uh, you know, reducing carbon and transportation. Like it's, there's this opportunity to create and to have a conversation that I think is, um, that the industry is, is poised to actually to have, right? Like coming out of COVID sort of showing its metal and like, okay, like, we're, we're ready for that conversation. I think the challenge um, is that there's also a potential for uh, increasingly, I would say, demanding regulatory environment, but there's certain uh, changes that happened over the course of the previous four years, whether there was an hours of service, um, truck weight, flexibility, other things like that, where these little um, 
sort of regulatory pieces, if an administration were to take any single one of those, would it be, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, a, sh a shift in hours of service is going to be like the end of the consumer packaged goods industry. But it's, it's like death by a thousand cuts at times when you have that regulatory environment. Um, and so I think that there's a, as we have the, the opportunistic conversations with the administration, it's also trying to convey, I think, the benefits of smart regulation, of ensuring that there's uniformity in that regulatory approach across different states. I think one of the things that you've seen uh, in the past administration is that uh, absent some degree of um, like federal oversight or the, the view towards federal government that like there should be federal policy, then states pick that up. Um, they're not going to wait. California is not going to wait around for for DC, especially under the past administration, to to take action. So California is going to go do what it's doing. New York's going to go do what it wants to do, and Washington's going to go do what it wants to do. And none of that is necessarily good. So um, there's, a, I think, a, just a the the long term sort of you know view to this or like sort of to, to tie everything together is it's like the opportunity is there to engage with the administration to be really thoughtful in the policy making that comes out of it and it's just on the industry's part to provide the ideas and i think that's where you know that's my role at the association and, and where i would try to work with our member companies is to understand their needs and then articulate those in a way that makes sense from like a policy level right like how do you how do you make a more resilient supply chain um if you are you know, the private sector is going to do what it does, but then there's there's policy levers that can be pulled within government, I think. Um, and that's where we'd love to, to see the, the government focus. So just a further off of that, CBA recently partnered with CSCMP to build a national policy roadmap to help distress supply chains in times of crisis. So can you just talk a little bit more about the road, roadmap and why you guys created it? Yeah, so that's actually the the report that I mentioned, um, and it was a, a the first, sort of the first ever comprehensive look at supply chain policy in the U.S. And I mentioned that there's a bunch of different policies today that impact supply chains, and we don't need more policy. It's just that we need more sort of articulated and thoughtful policy um, or coordinated policy. Um, so there's all of these different efforts every day underway, or the, there, there's sort of a, you know policy impacts you here. It creates how roads and bridges are designed. It creates how uh, the the regulatory regime that truckers are beholden to. It creates the sort of like the inspection calendar, the, the cadence of inspections that you have. Like it creates this business environment in which companies operate. Um, and I think that one of the things that the report most clearly articulates is that if you were to take a step back as administration, as policymakers, as others, and to just view that landscape of policy, and you compare yourself to a China or to some other countries that, you know, Singapore, others that have taken that step back. And they said, you know what, it is in our national interest to align some of this or to provide some strategic oversight or direction. Like this is what we want to achieve in five years or 10 years or 50 years. Um, and to view it through that lens of competitiveness and resiliency, then what steps need to be taken today in order to get us there? Like, we know that eventually there will be autonomous vehicles on the road. It would make sense 
to have research and programs that funnel into that so that you can create an autonomous framework so that you can then safely roll out and pilot autonomous vehicles so that you can then have autonomous vehicles. Like it's the, the strategic part behind rather than just saying, you know what, uh, the private sector will figure it out. Or, uh, you know what, it'll, the technology will eventually get there and we'll, I guess we'll circle back to it in five years. Like let's, let's start now um, so that we can have that that build up and we can shorten that five years to four years or um, just accelerate that progress that's made. And so that also when you have things like a transportation bill or infrastructure bill up for discussion, you're able to visit that with fresh eyes. It's not just a copy paste from the old bill into the new one and saying like, hey, like here we are, like we upped this program from 500 million to 560 and we dropped this program from 440 to 380, like it's all the same. Um, Instead, it's, you know, what is the, what is the goals that we're trying to do? We're trying to reduce congestion, right? How are we going to do that? We're going to actually put more of an emphasis on freight because there's more goods moving across the country. E-commerce is growing. Uh, people uh, are so reliant today on CPG products. Um, but we're going to put less of an emphasis on personal vehicle travel because actually when you talk about congestion, it's a car, not a truck that is the, I would say the contributor to congestion, but like it's not the number of trucks necessarily on the road. It's it's like so like, there's different ways of I think philosophically approaching it, and I think that that's generally what the report gets to, um, and also just that need then for if you are going to have that strategic and thoughtful conversation, there has to be federal leadership on it. Um, so the main the main sort of central point of the report is to call for an office of supply chain that would take this more holistic view to supply chains. It would have an understanding of the interconnectedness of agency decisions, of policymaking, that it's not like a DOT decision is not just a DOT decision. It's something that impacts commerce. It's some, and a commerce decision impacts some other aspect of, of supply chain. So um, being able to have that bridge, uh, not only within government, but then also with the private sector as well, um, because there needs to be a, a mechanism for thoughtful input from the private sector and, and vice versa. That's something that we also saw during COVID was the number of times, for example, that we would explain, to, I would have that conversation, why is there no toilet paper, right? Um, and it would happen at one agency and then it would happen at another agency and it would happen with a different group of people. And you're like, we've told you guys the same information, 10 different ways, like 10 <laughs> different times, 10 different ways, but it's the same information. Um, and so being able to facilitate that, I think is the, the end goal, right? To, to streamline everything and to make it more thoughtful. Fascinating. I just think this whole conversation and this whole topic is fascinating because, you know, CPG, everybody has CPG brands in their house, whether they eat them or use them on their hair or whatever the case is. And so um, it was just fascinating as you were talking to think in my own personal life, how things changed on our end. And and by the way, I stockpile shampoo because I'm very particular and and when they were out of it for a while, I was very upset I had to switch. So I, now I got that out of my system. We're good. <laughs> Confession. Everybody has to like confess what they were actually stockpiling. Yeah. That you open up our, our, our closet to our, our, our um, bathroom and it's like just a whole shelf of products because I, for some reason, if we go into apocalypse, I need shampoo. <laughs> there's some so. things, there's some things that you buy and then afterwards you're like, why? Like I, I bought the fake tree. I'm looking at it right now and like, it's aesthetically pleasing, but why? 
had a lot of problems getting that fake tree, didn't you? Yeah, probably. Yeah, she she's unlucky in logistics, so that's gonna be her new her another Twitter handle. Um, you could have like a second podcast called Unlucky in Logistics. I love it. Yeah, I love it. Really yes. but, uh, <laughs> exactly. No, I love it. Tom, I appreciate you joining us today. I think I could have talked to you all day because I feel like there's so many arms and legs to this conversation. And um, it's just fascinating to hear, you know, kind of what's ahead and what's going on. And, um, you know, it sounds like some good things. We're moving in the right direction as a country, which is great. And hopefully, um, you know, businesses kind of can come up for air for a little bit and kind of regroup and, and get stuff um, back in order. And so, you know, to all those that, that watch and listen, you know, we always thank our essential workers in the supply chain business. So thank you, everybody, for continuing to do what you do to keep that product moving so that we can stockpile it at the end. Because, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the end goal for everybody, you know. So, Tom, I appreciate you joining us today. And for those of you watching, please join us next week, 11 a.m. Central, because holy cow, we will be revealing and talking with live the overall winner of Supply and Demand Chain Executives Pro to Know winner. We are so excited. So keep you on your toes for this week, make you think about it, who it is, and then just join us on Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, and Instagram to watch live to see who the winner is. So Tom, thank you again. McKenna, thank you again. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to all of our readers and followers for being a part of today's discussion. Please follow us on Facebook to tune in every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Central for more Facebook Live conversations discussing hot button topics impacting today's supply chain and logistics industry. Thank you. Mm -hmm.